Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Did you say that? future has come to pass. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that dissects the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. So let's go ahead and jump into it, man. This is our fourth off-the-record recap episode for Soul Harvest, The World Takes Sides. We've now done this for Left Behind, Tribulation Force, Nikolai, and now we're moving on to book four. Like we do in all of these recaps, this is going to be pretty freeform. We don't really have a script. We're just going to talk about basic stuff that hit us throughout the book, kind of how we felt about it, how we think it stacks up to the rest. And at the end, we're going to go ahead and give it a rating. So I'll go ahead and throw it to you real quick, Gav. Um, Just your gut. How'd you feel about the book? With this book, we are starting to notice the pattern. And as for this stage in the pattern that we are at with like the, uh, what we're going to, I'm going to call the left behind cycle. It was really good. I, out of the two that we've gotten since the, the big suck, uh, I would say <laughs> I really I like <laughs> I, I don't want to say its name right now. Yeah, don't say it. <laughs> don't it's say in, it's it. in your it, trash can still. It, it just makes it more real if you say it. So but of the two books after that, Nikolai and Soul Harvest, I prefer Nikolai better. However, Soul Harvest had, I guess, more individual moments that I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. I like uh, I like where they're going with this. Yeah, a lot of stuff happened. Yeah. Like, and, and I know that that sounds really vague and generic, but like there were a lot of plot beats in this book. A lot of stuff moved forward and a lot of things got set. And I think you and I were talking a little bit earlier about sort of the left behind cycle that you just mm-hmm. mentioned. Yeah. Elaborate on that, what we're kind of starting to notice. Yeah, the left behind cycle started in uh, the first like moment of book one, where a massive event happens that kind of resets the status quo. Everything's different, and that is your plot genesis. Then the left behind cycle deals with those repercussions, sometimes in a very eventful way because it shook up things and everything has to be moved around. But sometimes the big thing that happened just kind of creates a whole bunch of nothing as you wait for the next big uh, event to happen. So that's what we've gotten. Big thing happens. The the counterweight has to deal with that big thing and leads up to the next big thing and so on and so on. I think that the narrative of Left Behind is kind of unwieldy. Yeah. And that would be one of my criticisms 
for the entire book series is that the plotting is very uneven and unwieldy. It almost seems like Jerry as an author, because as we know, Jerry's the writer here. Tim is kind of the consultant Mm -hmm. because Tim's the guy who comes up with the prophecy stuff. He's the one doing the interpretation and saying these are the events that need to happen. Jerry's the storyteller. Yeah. I think the story gets away from Jerry sometimes. I would say so, because you know what? I'm going to link our 30-minute conversation we had before getting on (laughs) mic about a better book here into what we were talking about. It's almost like, all right, David Lynch directed the Dune movie. Yeah. And a lot of where, why that movie flopped was the studio didn't really let David do what he wanted with some of it. And I don't think that the relationship between uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins is as intense as between David Lynch and the studio he worked for. But I can kind of see where that happened, where maybe Jerry was wanting to do something with the stories doomed, but nope, that didn't fall in with God's plan, a.k.a. Tim LaHaye's like playbook that he's laid out. Yeah, and I think that you're right about that with the studio and the director comparison Mm -hmm. because the whole idea for the series was Tim's idea. I feel like, you know, he went to Jerry and partnered with him. It feels like Tim is kind of the producer. Mm -hmm. So nothing really goes in there without his approval. You know, he was also the more well-connected one in the Christian world. He was kind of the money guy. And also when we look at the way that Jerry is writing, he's clearly trying to do some setup and payoff about certain things. He's trying to put bits into the narrative that are threads that could get pulled on and go somewhere. And then it feels like, especially toward the end of things like this book, that he has to just cram a bunch of prophecy stuff in at the end to make sure it happens and then spend a book or two dealing with it. Yeah. Now, it's not nearly as bad as Tribulation Force. Sorry, I said it. It's not nearly as bad, but I think we both noticed as we were galloping toward the end of Soul Harvest and being like, and then this meteor falls and hits the thing, and then this meteor uh, poisons everything, and then, and then, and then, The end of this book was pretty cool. Uh, like, uh, this book has probably had, so far, my favorite, like, uh, what we would call, like, left-behind moments to, like, start the cycle is, okay, this one just has, like, all these big, like, oh, it's raining blood, wormwood comes down, things are catching on fire. A very Old Testament, uh, fantastical uh, approach to things, and it's really cool. However, there's a lot, and I feel like all of these prophecies taking place maybe, like, once every you know, 50 pages would have really changed up the pacing in a cool way, but we don't really see that. It could have been done better in a way where the judgments and the moments of prophecy were weaved in to the story a little bit more organically. Mm -hmm. The moments where the characters get to flat out experience them, the earthquake at the end of Nikolai, or even the hail and the blood at the end of this one would have felt more engaging and more part of the narrative and not just sort of dashed off if that had happened, but it doesn't. Now, there are moments later in book five, book six, and so on, where that does become a little bit more relevant because they kind of just rush through a lot of these judgments. But once you got half a book series left and only seven judgments left or something like that, I don't remember the exact numbers, it becomes a little easier to show the direct impact and have characters react to them. 
Mm -hmm. because we didn't have anybody on a boat when the Appalachian Mountains crashed into the ocean. We didn't have anybody drink the water and get poisoned. We're not seeing that from the character's perspective. And as a consequence, I think that that disconnects what are some really cool, awesome happenings in the book from reality as we're reading it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and... uh I just had the weirdest thought. You know what would have been a better approach to writing these novels, like, stylistically? If it was written kind of like World War Z. Oh, you mean like diaries? Yeah, like people's individual accounts of what they saw. Like, imagine if the first Left Behind book is a lot of people's different perspective of, like, what did they see when it happened? I think that's awesome. Yeah, that would have been like a much better way to do it. I'm very partial to like stuff like that where it's very it's like a bunch of documents, but that would have even been like stylistically parallel to the Bible too. So again, we, we can we will reiterate we could make better left behind books than Tim LaHanger. <laughs> I, I am making that assertion, and I, I will continue making it. And just throw that in that gauntlet. Go ahead and at Jerry on Twitter and be like, let us rewrite your books. <laughs> Give us the rights to left behind. Yeah, we'll we'll do what we they did with the MCU. They'll just take all of the core elements and then we'll just update them and make them less cheesy. And I think that that's something I wanted to point out because when you said making something, what's the what's the word for that? Is it epistemological or epistolary? Uh, um, hold on. I, the way oh, Dracula's I written, it's like an epistolary yeah, I think novel. Like, yeah, epistolary, yeah. I wasn't an English major, guys. But yeah, where it's a series of diary entries or letters or something like that, given... A, a normal person's perspective on these crazy events. Um, it reminded me of one of my favorite limited runs in comics. It's called Marvels. You ever read Marvels? Uh, no, I haven't. Like, what's so it? it's a four-part series, and it is um, it's beautiful illustrations by Alex Ross, and it is four major events in like Marvel Comics continuity. It's mm-hmm. like Human Torch versus Submariner, like the first appearance of the X Men, the coming of Galactus. The last one I think is the death of Gwen Stacy, mm-hmm. and it. It is all told from the perspective of one photojournalist. Oh, whoa, that's cool. Throughout his career. So it starts in the 30s and then it goes through to, I guess, the 70s. Oh, whoa. These events are happening in real time. So he's aging, his kids and wife are aging, and he's interacting with these heroes, but as a photojournalist, not really getting up close and personal with them. He's watching the events play out. Oh. Really beautiful story. That. Oh man, that took some heartstrings, and I'll need to uh, I need to check that out. I bet it's on Comicsology, or you can get the trade paperback. I don't know where my copy is, or I just lend it to you. Okay, heck yeah, I'll have to get that. Really good, and the illustrations are gorgeous. So something like that would have been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Or you know, we get some found footage stuff, like a Diary of the Dead or a Cloverfield kind of thing. Like that's super cool. But when we have all these hyper competent heroes and we're spending all the time on their interpersonal drama and things like that, I feel like either do a thriller with a large cast and all their interpersonal drama and make it a political thriller or do the apocalyptic prophecy stuff. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to balance both. And I don't think that the books always succeed. I don't think this book necessarily succeeds. There are moments where it does. Yeah. There are moments where I really feel for these characters and I'm really there with them, but it's not all the time. Yeah. And like at times these books are decent. Like I've said before, it's kind of like whenever I pop on 
uh, a chapter of Left Behind you, because of like how I'm consuming it through 2x audiobook speed. Each chapter is about like 15 minutes. So it's almost like I'm just watching like an episode of like a cartoon, almost like uh, a Bible TV show that you would watch when you're really young. So it's kind of like prodding at that kind of nostalgia. I'm like, okay, I can kind of just tune out for a minute and listen to this. But it's not quite uh, like normal children cartoon levels because it's still like a slog to get through because half of the time you get some cool stuff, but the other half, it just seems like filler that we have to reach to interface with in an entertaining way. I would give someone $2,000 to make me a left behind anime opening. I would, uh, you know what? I would $2,000 and a crisp high five. Yeah. Someone make a a left behind uh, anime opening money on the table. I I don't have $2,000 for that. Sorry. I got to pay bills. Yeah. (laughs) But seriously, like you're right. It is kind of episodic for us because especially when we're doing our notes, because a little background on us, we are reading these books or listening to them like normal people first. And then when we go back and do our notes and highlights and everything like that, a lot of the times we're listening to them at 2x speed. Oh yeah, 1x speed is too slow. Like I literally cannot listen to the books as presented because of like uh, now about 14, like no, hold on. Let's eight times four. Oh my God, how much left behind have I consumed? Uh, 36, right? 8, 16. Something like that. Yeah, like, oh, 32. 32 hours of left behind. I've now gotten to a point where left behind as come in package is not enough. Yeah, and what's really funny is that my Audible app keeps my speed consistent. And I tried to switch over because I was listening to Dune. That's our secret, guys. We're listening to other books alongside of Left Behind to keep ourselves sane. The Dune narrator is so much faster, so even 1.5 was impossible. Yeah. I had to slow it down to to normal speed. Yeah, I I listened to Dune because, like, that's, uh, I think, yeah, we're both going through Dune right now. I listened to Dune at, like, 1.2. Anything above that's just insane. Yeah, totally. Some things that stuck out to us in the book, I think, is really where we need to go next. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things for me, and I've said this on some of the previous shows, but I think right now might be a good time to sort of start to unpack it. Something that I've said before, but this is the book where I think that it is the most apparent the militarization of the Christians, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Becoming a soldier. And we named episode 11, so part two of this, we named it Born Again Hard. I had somebody ask me, like, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, it's an old war movie trope. I kind of talked with somebody off mic about this. As you're going through adversity in a military-style situation, there is a part of you that has to die, and that's the part of you that is not okay with killing the enemy. Yeah. In a war story... That is acceptable. That's part of the narrative. I understand that. But the thing that really bugs me will not sit right with me for the remainder of this series is that from this point on, if you are a member of the Tribulation Force, if you are one of the believers, you are expected to be a soldier in an army. That kind of flies in the face of how I was raised as a Christian. That, because when I I saw some stuff when I was growing up in my denomination, it was a little bit more of the opposite, like that kind of mentality. The pacifist mentality was seen almost like a local group heresy in a way. This is more kind of like what I have seen like a lot more in my, the religious kind of frame that I was in. That was a bit more normalized. Okay. For me, and this may have been something that happened at home, uh, my parents may have filtered this. 
it was always made clear that the war imagery in the Bible, you know, putting on the armor of God or being a warrior for Christ, that kind of thing was metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And that it was meant to illustrate your willingness to sacrifice, but not to do violence or to do literal battle. To kind of paraphrase Patton, it was to illustrate the importance of dying for your country, not making the other guy die for his. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when I hear that, it's a little hard for me to get my head around that that is what certain people have taken away from this. And I feel like it's almost a form of wish fulfillment for a lot of evangelicals, especially right-wing evangelicals who maybe feel alienated from the larger culture, who feel as if the culture is degenerate or decadent. It has declined. Um, and I think we get a lot of that from Zion's messaging in this book. Culture is decadent. Culture is degenerate. It has declined. It has fallen away from God as the culture has moved away from sort of the white right-wing evangelical status quo. Mm -hmm. You get a lot of preaching about morality and things like that. Yeah. I think these books try to give a common enemy in something like globalism or a global conspiracy so that it is a form of wish fulfillment for those Christians who swing on that end of the political spectrum to live vicariously through these characters that are fighting and eventually killing representations of the culture that left them behind. Yeah. No pun intended. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I totally see that. Because like a lot of this, even Buck's journey of going from just a reporter to being a guy that he's one of the first people in the tribulation force that has killed someone and everyone else is like they're gearing up like oh we are getting ready to kill these enemies that are caricatures of evil almost and i also understand that that level of caricatures of evil does kind of is that that's influenced very heavily by tim lahay having like dealing with combating the nazis so he is taking that experience and just also sh putting that in the books as well dealing with that kind of evil uh, he wanted to really channel that i guess into his art and how that the other things that he attached his kind of his ideological direction as well that is a very dangerous combination you're right and i think it's ironic yeah because let's say you know tim lahaye served his country fought fascists, mm -hmm. right? When you look at Left Behind as a whole, everything that this is pointing toward, and if you read Revelation and you see where the story ends, you know, I think there's, it might've been Zion that said, the outcome has been determined. We win. Yeah. Okay, who's we and how do we win? Well, we is the kingdom of God, is the Christians, is the evangelicals that are servants of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. What they're looking to establish is a kingdom ruled by Christ on earth. Yeah. Now, let's take realm of possibility out of that for a second and say, okay, in the context of the story, that's what they are looking to create, to turn our world as it is now into a kingdom, not a democracy, not a republic, a literal autocracy run by an immortal, literal God emperor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Like, that's what they want. That's what, like, that's what they're going for. And I know that it's unfair to kind of read it like that. But when you pull back far enough, it's like an autocratic, literal theocracy run by a god emperor that is 
controlling the entire world and everyone is subject to this one being's power. That is the kind of world they are looking to create. Yeah. There is no room for dissent. There is no room for alternative opinion. There is no room for anything but service to this one God being. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, oh, we believe God created the universe. We believe that God establishes order in the universe. No, 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 no. God is controlling politics. God is controlling infrastructure. God is controlling society. That's what they're going to build. And you think I'm sounding weird. There is a 13th book in the series, which goes into a great amount of detail about what that society looks like. We're going to get there eventually. Kingdom Come, like that is one that I am looking forward to see, like just what in there because like where that takes place in like the timeline of like revelation itself is just bonkers like part of it from just what i've heard part of it takes place like post bible like after bible says amen it's extrapolating on what what what's there yeah that's what it all is oh my gosh it's the thousand year reign so yeah that's what we have to look forward to i'm gonna promise you you're probably gonna want to take a little bit of a break after glorious appearing really Book number 12, yeah. We're probably going to take a little break and do some other stuff between that and Kingdom Come and then maybe the prequels. Okay, yeah. Kingdom Come will start off that arc, I guess. That'll start off that arc because it is a lot crammed into one left-behind length book. And there's a reason why it didn't become its own series. I'm just going to say that. Because I have only read pieces of it, but I know the plot. And it's it's a lot to take in. Wait, one more thing, because like just some speculation, you know how we've talked about how the most fun parts of Left Behind are when they just go completely left field and just do what they want, like with Eli and Moisha, the Mark of the Lamb, stuff like that. I imagine Kingdom Come is 100% that. It is. Yeah, you're having to make up, all right, well, let's make up what heaven's like. Exactly. I think that that's something that comes in this book as well with a lot of the judgments and with a lot of the looking forward into how the kingdom of the Antichrist is going to be built. So if you look at kingdom come as the kingdom of Christ, this is going to be the kingdom of the Antichrist truly kind of taking hold. Mm-hmm. So the subtitle of Soul Harvest is The World Takes Sides. All this stuff we've been talking about up until this point, I want people who are listening or reading along with us or who are just listening to the podcast to really think about what that means. Because when you zoom out far enough, your choices are either autocracy under Antichrist and what they would consider a worldly autocracy. It's very humanistic. It's focused on humanity and the earth as it is versus autocracy under Christ classic, meaning like literal theocracy, heaven and earth remade under a God emperor being utopia dystopia Mm -hmm. almost. I don't think either of those are great choices. Yeah. Like, it doesn't leave a lot of room for autonomy. It doesn't leave a lot of room for anybody to do anything other than serve under one of two autocrats. It's not great. And one is God and one is the devil. Mm -hmm. In terms of looking at this book, I don't have a lot of options. I don't like this. Yeah, it kind of ties a little bit back to the Pascal's Casino wager that we've had. It's like, oh, you bet with your life if something's real or not. So do you really want to be supporting the Satan autocrat when you know that the God autocrat wins? 
is uh, kind of how I've heard it put before. It's like the the whole meta narrative that gets thrown at you when evangelicals trying to convert someone. You're put in a no win scenario, and you're shown the only way to reprogram the system for uh, for a Star Trek <laughs> reference. Yeah, I was like, please, are you making a Kobayashi Maru reference? You yes, are. I'm making a Kobayashi Maru reference because I don't believe in no win scenarios. Yeah, they set up this narrative for like, hey, uh, you're doomed, but luckily. I know the the one way that you can become undoomed. And I've talked before how about, okay, but you're only throwing out one interpretation of that path out of the darkness, so to speak. And there's like a hundred different of the interpretations competing for the top spot and what's the real way to do it. So it gets really like muddied in practice as well. Like it's it splinters off and just becomes like a, a vehicle for someone else's already existing ideology. It does. And that's another thing. And I'm glad you said that. Because if I got to live for eternity under right-wing evangelical Jesus, the Jesus that I can't remember who said it at some CPAC thing recently, but it was like, Jesus is not going to come back on a white horse with a sword. He's coming back with an AR-15 like those guys. Oh, God. If I got to live under their Jesus for eternity, you know what? Hell for the company, boys. Here we go. (laughs) But if I got to live under right there in the text Jesus... Man, it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Like, I might be convinced, but specifically because we're having to deal with these books, so much baggage comes along with it, with the moralizing and the and the picking and choosing what's a sin and what's not based on these interpretations. And like you said, someone, and it is one, kind of two, but one person's personal interpretation of what the Bible says regarding morality. Mm-hmm. And then also some stuff that the Bible clearly does say that he just doesn't pay attention to at all. It's wildly inconsistent and it's disappointing. And I know that I'm taking a huge magnifying glass to this. I know that I am trying to pick things apart and you can even say that I'm nitpicking. I don't feel like I am. And, you know, I can hear the voice of my dad in the back of my head going, and, you know, my dad is a Christian. You're looking at fallible humans that are interpreting the word of God. They're never going to get it completely right. Mm -hmm. And I'm here for that. Like, I agree with that. They're not going to get it completely right. And you know, I'm not a Christian, but that is something I would like to aspire to. Like, I'd love to have a belief system, which was, you know, be excellent to each other and take care of each other and, you know, be nice. And that's it. But like, there's so much baggage that comes along with Christianity and how it has been interpreted down through the years and how it's turned into a defense of traditional hierarchies and everything like that that just nah I can't go there I don't want to live under that Jesus and it's been interesting because I've talked about how left behind has almost been like reading this series and doing this podcast has really helped me on my spiritual journey because like I'm I'm a sucker for religious frameworks and stuff for some reason that's just where my brain loves to affix and like uh, spend a good portion of my time thinking about in and this book series has been very helpful because I can see where a lot of thinking when you interface with Christianity can go. And I, that's a thing that you'll notice if you study anything out in the, the Christian kind of meta narrative throughout the years is people are going to take the Bible and they're going to just hold it up and use it as like a wand for what they're trying to put out in the world. Like, you know, we've like, and every, and a lot of them, they're going to use it for ill. Like Jim Jones, eventually went off the rails because he was kind of grifting with it. Uh, We've had like people like Kenneth Copeland 
and Pat Robertson that are pretty much just using it to fuel their own wealth. Baldwell. Yeah, Faldwell. Just all of the- And to a degree, like like Trump and all of the quote-unquote prophets and preachers and servants of God who came around to prop that guy up. A part of me with like how I look at it, because like I, I start out the show and I'm just like, okay, I'm a Christian universalist and I broke down what that meant. And to a degree, it's a, a part of me always wants to attach myself to some of the stuff that I've grown up with because, okay, I know the myth system. I know the like how all these pieces are supposed to fit together. And I have the cognizance that, you know what, you have, you have all this lore, you can do pretty much whatever you want with it, but you have to work within a degree of responsibility. While I still want to attach, I I still want to remember it and use it um, for good purposes. Doing this show and really thinking about some of the stuff in it has kind of shifted the direction I want to take. Because one of my core, I guess, mantra ideas about what I'm trying to do with interfacing with religion is I want to become the bridge between old and new or become a bridge between old and new to get less grandiose about it. Like I want to take the information that people used to sustain themselves through really dark moments. I want to take that and try to bring it into a way that's helpful for people in this era to understand. Doing this podcast has shown me some of the ways not to do that and some of the ways that a lot of people are going to use these against uh, people. And it's been really interesting because I've been talking to a lot of people recently about their experience in the church growing up. And a lot of them, a lot of them didn't have really good childhoods in it. A lot of these things were used almost like to a Orwellian level of any thought outside of what the local group expects of that child is rendered almost thought crime and they're not able to properly express who they want to be. They can't have that autonomy. It's almost like there's a miniature version of that autocratic state that we've talked about, the the right-wing evangelical Jesus autocratic state in like a miniature framework. Or one of the works that I've said is very reminiscent of 1984 is this play called The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man the Moon Marigolds that talks about same kind of thing. Like it's a, it's an environment where no one really has autonomy, but it's told through the framework of just a bad abusive household and uh, with a mother and um, her two daughters. And Marigold doesn't get into religion as a, as a controlling mechanism in it, but that's definitely a trend that I have seen with a lot of people I've talked to when I like bring up this series and like ask them a few questions about like how they uh, experienced it or how they experienced uh, an evangelical household. You saying that just now, and this is something I've kind of alluded to previously. I'm very fortunate. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of baggage associated with, like you said, that sort of autocratic state in miniature growing up in church. I mean, everybody got baggage, but Comparatively, my parents, very open, very communicative, always explaining the why behind what they believed. And then as soon as I became an adult, perfect respect for what I believe or don't believe. Like there's not really a lot that goes in there. Like, I mean, sure, there were things I wasn't allowed to watch, things I wasn't allowed to do. And that's stuff that me and my parents joke about now. They're interested in whatever I do and they support me 110%. They listen to the podcast. Hi, mom and dad, love you. But I don't carry with me 
any of that, and for lack of a better phrase, trauma that comes with that. So I know that I'm looking at this from a pretty high place of privilege in how my life was shaped by evangelical Christianity. And so if I come off flippant sometimes about some of these things that seem very real to you, if you're Mm -hmm. listening, I'm sorry. That's not the experience that I had. You know, just know that, you know, I feel for you. And I hope that in listening to us tell you that, you know, you're not crazy, you know, for feeling the way that you did or the way that you do now, if you have stuff that you're trying to work through or things that you resent or things that you, you know, are still wanting to kind of find answers to, uh, we encourage that. There's a lot. And, you know, I'm kind of working through my own understanding of sort of how it influenced my life. And Gavin, like you said, you're working through where you stand spiritually in general. And like, it's a journey. Yeah. And that's something that I don't think was ever really impressed upon me fully when I was in the church. It was more of just a do's and don'ts sort of thing. And I think that I had leaders who tried to teach me that, that spirituality is is supposed to be a journey. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a movement. You're never, you're never done. I think the closest that I got to that was basically saying that you are always striving for Christ-likeness, but you're never going to reach it. The idea of striving for perfection, but you're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. But I think that what you're kind of saying, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, is you're kind of moving from, and to quote, a David Bowie song, Station to Station. Yeah. In a journey, which is kind of funny because Station to Station is full of imagery specifically from the Kabbalah, which we have referenced earlier in this, talking about uh, Nikolai and the 216 and all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in a way, it's kind of like that. The label of Christian universalism, I don't think fully is accurate to where I'm at right now. When I started, it was pretty, it was a pretty good descriptor. Now it's a bit outdated and I'm not sure what to call it because I've talked a a little bit before about my interest and some of my concerns about Unitarian Universalism. And that's kind of at where I'm at. Like, hey, you kind of can construct this whatever works for you almost with the the meta narrative of how you like construct what you believe. That's fine. Everyone's just trying to learn from each other and how they're personally constructing what they do. Uh, And the only problem I get with that is when you start to add hierarchy and like religious institutions in there that can sometimes really muddy it. Like I'll give the book some credit. Enigma Babylon, One World Faith, in a way is like if Catholics and Scientologists like just fused is what I'm starting to see. That kind of thing where like we've, I've seen like a lot of religious institutions that are trying to do the the gist of like the the thought train that I'm on and they have just gone horribly and I want to kind of avoid that and it's been it's been a very fun journey so far if I was gonna have a religious experience having it through a podcast where I talk about like really terrible books you know that's very on brand for me so I really like this Yeah, I'm right there with you. Let's get into a little bit more about the books itself. So we've talked a little bit about like what we're not a fan of and like how that is harmful. So the stuff I've liked about this one is, again, we've had like the whole Leon coming back from the dead was like a cool like tone shift for it because that's starting to get. Now, we don't know 100% if that was an act of charlatanism or if that was like back from the dead i'm pretty sure we can assume that that was powers but that's still a little bit do you want me to like 
nail that for you. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much 99% sure it was legit. Okay, yeah. So we're starting to get that aspect of it where it's starting to feel less like just grounded in in like some realism where it's like mostly just natural disasters happening and uh, stuff like that. We're starting to get more consistent. Okay, weird supernatural stuff is just happening in mass all over the world. Yeah, we back end three major trumpet judgments in this book. Mm-hmm. I did want to say Leon coming back from the dead, that was a Randall Flagg, Stephen King, like Dark Tower book one moment for me. I was like, oh, here we are. Here's the weird. Okay. People are coming back from the dead. It's time. Big trumpet judgments. So it's the hail, the fire, the blood, and a third of all the trees and grass are burned up. That's all one judgment. We get the mountain of fire plummeting into the sea, sinking a third of the ships, turning a third of the water to blood, and killing a third of the sea life. And then we get the star wormwood, which breaks up and poisons a third of the rivers and freshwater sources. So that's going to remain relevant in the rest of the story, but... They just kind of bam, 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 knocked them out at the very end of the book. And I had completely forgotten about it raining blood until you said something earlier. Like, that's how fast they go. I don't think Mm -hmm. they get their due. And I kind of said this earlier. So we have that. We have the moment that actually kind of worked for me. Both of the hospital sort of entanglements that they get into, I thought that they were fairly well written. Yeah, and they weren't the worst sections, but at the same time, it just, I feel like some of them dragged on for a bit too long. But yeah, they were fine. We got the whole trope of while in the hospitals, Buck does an espionage. And so we got some of the the comical moments that go along with that. So yeah, usually when Buck is doing a Buck thing, either with technology or he's putting on a disguise, it's going to be at least, at least it's going to be somewhat amusing. So uh, I'll give it that. Yeah, and I think that that worked for me. And as much as I have a real big problem with the fact that Buck now has a body count, and you've heard me talk at length about that, I still kind of was here for it. It made the danger feel real. It made it feel more imminent. People are getting truly shot at now, and people are dying. And like you said earlier, we're in this left-behind cycle of things change, and then we pick up the pieces. That's what I'm seeing here. And that is going to be a moment where it's a change for Buck's narrative. You're going to see how Buck's station in the narrative changes as we move into book five and then into book six. Those moments have broader implications, and that's something that I can appreciate. Unlike some of the other plot threads that I know you took notice of that maybe didn't have broader implications. I'm going to yell next episode. I know it. Yep. I can't yeah, I, I can't say I can't tell you guys why I'm <laughs> mad yet. But no, you'll be sc- I hope you're screaming in your cars next episode like along with me cuz Jerry lets the narrative get away from him. It happens. Mhm. I like that all the characters are kind of back together again. Yeah. To a degree. Not everybody completely, but we're sort of starting to get a core group back together after being split off over over all of Nikolai. And in a way, communications are now like largely back online in the planet. So even though if they're not physically together, like they have that connection where they at least still now they can talk to each other, at least on the phone with one another. So that's at least restored. So we did have, like I said, a lot of plot movement. In this one, the world is now different than it was at the end of Nikolai and the start of this book. The world has changed by the end of this book. So that is forward plot movement. One last thing before we kind of go into ratings and we wrap this up, unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about. No, I'm good. Oh, uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> okay. 
I have been meaning to mention this for like three episodes and I keep forgetting and I keep telling Gavin that I'm forgetting. Everybody who has said to me that I didn't mention the significance of 216 and the Sephiroth in the Kabbalah, since I talked about the Kabbalah a little bit earlier with the David Bowie thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, the words Sephiroth and the, the stations of the Kabbalah, all 10 of them, are the inspiration for the name of the character Sephiroth from Final Fantasy VII. So... <laughs> Yes, just like how I forgot the X-Men when we were talking about the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, I forgot to mention Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII. Maybe one day we can do a Judeo-Christian imagery in Final Fantasy VII short episode once we've been thoroughly marinated in all this apocalypse stuff. <laughs> um, but yes, that is the inspiration for Sephiroth. Maybe this week we can go out on One Winged Angel instead of Satan is Real. <laughs> All right, so you want to rate these? All right, let's this let's one? rate this guy. So for Soul Harvest, the world takes sides. You guys all know it at this point. We give it a rating out of four horsemen. Typically, I try to round mine off, but I think I'm going to have to go a halfway on this. Mm -hmm. I liked it. I listened to it three times in total. I think that it is good at what it tries to do. It does not always succeed at anything past that, but it accomplishes what it sets out to do. All the plot yeah. threads that it tries to put forward pretty much get wrapped up. It is able to introduce a decent amount of stuff. Does it plod in certain places? Does it slow down, get stuck in the mud? Yes. In contrast to books we've read previously and books that we're going to read in the future, I think it gets the job done, but I'm not going to give it any extra gold stars like I did for stuff in Nikolai. It just doesn't have the same oomph that Nikolai had. I'm going to go ahead and give this a 2.5. Okay. I'm going to, because like I've said before, um, out of the two books after the book that I shall not. Uh, tribulation Force, Tribulation Force, Tribulation Force. No! Crash <laughs> can, damn it. <laughs> but yeah, as, uh, as far as the two books after Tribulation Force that, uh, have occurred. I like Nikolai better, which I believe I give a 3.5. I'm going to give Soul Harvest a three because I still think, like, like I said, I had like as far as per uh, capita of like how much, you know what? I'm going to actually, yeah, I'm going to lower it down to 2.5 as well. It, uh, Solid 2.5? Yeah, solid 2.5. All right. So two and a half horses. Is it the front half? Is it the back half? You pick. Yep. That's up to you. <laughs> All right. Okay, this wouldn't be a wrap-up episode if we didn't give a little teaser for the next book. If you guys will open your copies with me as we read the plot summary of Apollyon, The Destroyer is Unleashed. The world holds its breath as the Tribulation Force ventures to Jerusalem for the great meeting of the Witnesses, where tens of thousands defy the Antichrist to sit under the ministry of their pastor-teacher, Zion ben Judah. The Fifth Trumpet Judgment, a plague of scorpion-like locusts led by Apollyon, chief demon of the abyss, is so horrifying that men try to kill themselves, but are not allowed to die. All right, we did it! All right, another one in the can. We are now... And we're getting into book five. I told you, I told you to wait for me. I told you to hang out. We're getting there. We're finally getting there. We are now one third of the way through the the first phase of I Survive the Rapture. Yeah, we are one third of the way through the tribulation, boys. Whew. 
All right. Get the old boys to sing us out again. All righty. Well, thank you guys for joining us on this week's wrap up. This has been I Survived the Rapture. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, um, play Final Fantasy VII if you have yeah, it. Yeah, you know I'm going to probably pl- be playing that soon. Yeah, that, play that. that play the remake. It's real good. Okay, bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, you can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>